legalism and Galatians chapter 2. Today on the show, we're going to be going verse by verse through Galatians chapter 2. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Galatians chapter 1, and let's see, now for anybody that wasn't here last week, I'll just do a quick review. It's always good to go back and, and uh, just look at what happened before. So again, the book of Galatians, Paul had visited Galatia twice, on two different occasions, right? He had gone to Galatia and uh, had preached the gospel. The Galatians had received the gospel with readiness and thankfulness, and many were saved. But then after he left, he was ministering in Corinth, uh, at least that's what we believe, and during this time he got some intel that the Judaizers had shown up and were totally destroying the gospel there in Galatia. They were teaching that you must be circumcised and you must keep all the Mosaic law in order to be saved. In other words, you had you had to do something to be saved. There were works that preceded salvation. And then also you had to continue in those works. And so Paul was so bent out of shape over this that he wrote this book with his own hand, which, again, as far as we know, this is the only book he actually wrote with his own hand. He usually dictated it to a secretary. So uh, Paul writes this epistle to the Galatians and... Uh, the outline goes as follows. It's such an easy outline. I love how this book is laid out. It's so simple. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul is defending himself. This is a personal uh, portion of the book. The Judaizers were claiming a couple different things. A, uh, they were saying uh, that Paul was teaching a seeker-sensitive gospel, basically, that he had dumbed down the gospel uh, taking away the, the demands of the law so that the Gentiles would have an easier acceptance of the truth. Okay? And then they did this by claiming that Paul was an apostle sent out by man and not by Jesus. Right? So they actually, the, the Judaizers were claiming they were getting this other gospel. They were getting it from James and Peter. That's what they were claiming. Okay? Uh, and that Paul was kind of like an inferior apostle. He was not really an apostle of Christ. So the first two chapters of Galatians, he's defending his apostleship. He's saying, no, I am an apostle of Christ. And we talked about that last week. And then he also defends the gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles. And he has several different ways that he goes about doing that. Tonight we're going to see several more of those. Uh, chapters 3 and 4, we get into the doctrinal stuff. We talk about how uh, the gospel of grace is superior over the gospel, or the law. Okay? It, the law and trying to achieve salvation through the law is inferior to the gospel of grace. Uh, he also talks about the, the uh, whole purpose of the law. You know, if, if the law can't save you, what was the purpose of it? We'll get into that here in a few weeks. 
And then lastly, chapters 5 and 6, he goes into the more practical side of things. Uh, what are the, the moral and ethical considerations, uh, things that we should consider resulting from the knowledge that we're saved by faith? For example, you know, okay, well, if we're under grace, does that give us a license to sin? Can we just go out and sin all we want? God forbid, yes! <laughs> so, uh, anyway, that's, that's the, the outline. Very easy to memorize. And, uh, so you can just about find just about anything in Galatians just by knowing that outline. You can find about where you're going to see it in the book. So, moving into Galatians chapter 2 verse 1. Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, let me try that one again. Then 14 years after, I went up to Jerusalem again with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but but privately to them, which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. And so Paul here, he went up to Jerusalem one of his main purposes was to go up there and talk to the other apostles and just make sure that he was 100% spot on above reproach as far as the gospel he was preaching to the Gentiles. Now, Paul had been taught, according to the scriptures, for like there was three years where he was in Nabataean uh, Arabia, and somewhere in there Christ was teaching him, Okay. So he knew what he was talking about. This is a guy who is a scholar of scholars. He knew exactly what he was talking about. But we're talking 14 years later, and you know how... They, I, I mean, I don't fault the man. 14 years, you're getting beat up by these Judaizers. You're getting hit from all ends. People are hitting you with sticks and throwing rocks at you. And pretty soon you're like, gosh, am I 100% spot on? I mean, what if I slipped on maybe just the tiniest little point and Paul was so careful about his gospel. He wanted to make so certain that he was spot on. He went up there. Now, he took Titus with him as well, which is uh, kind of an interesting thing. I should mention also, it says he went up by revelation. So he was led by the Holy Spirit to go up there. Um, the Judaizers, there were rumors going around that Paul was going up there because they told him to go up there. Uh, you need to check your gospel. You know what I'm saying? So... Um, he goes up there and he's, he's saying, no, I did this by revelation. God himself sent me up there. And he takes Titus with him also. And I think that is a really gutsy maneuver. Okay, so Titus is an uncircumcised Gentile believer. He's a young Christian. Okay, he's been following and being trained up under Paul. He's believing everything this guy Paul is saying. And now he's going to go up to Jerusalem Ground zero for the legalists, okay? And he's going to go up there as an uncircumcised Gentile and be basically brought before the, the apostles and this thing's going to be settled, you know? So if you can imagine Titus and he's thinking, oh man, what if he's wrong? And, and yikes. So he goes up there and I think this was a brilliant move on Paul's part. Seriously, because Paul is now bringing a living example. He's going to have a living stamp of approval from the apostles. He's going to go in there, and they're going to say, oh, yeah, no, he doesn't have to be circumcised. And now all these Judaizers, they know Titus was brought before the apostles. 
And now they're going to see Titus. He's still not circumcised. Boom. That's awesome. So Paul's really, he's, he's covering the bases. Um, so he goes up to Jerusalem with Titus. Now, many scholars believe, and I think there's tons of evidence to suggest this, that this little uh, excursion, this vacation, if you will, to Jerusalem was where we get the Jerusalem Council that's talked about in Acts chapter 15. It fits perfect to, perfectly together and, and is totally relevant to what we're talking about. So he goes up there, and the same thing happens right when he gets there. There are Judaizers that immediately jump on him about some things, and a council is called. Hey, look, Paul's here. Let's do this. And, and so hold your place in Galatians. Let's go over to Acts chapter 15 and look at this. And it starts in verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Sound familiar? When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. Okay, so... We see that this question went down. They go up there to Jerusalem, and they're going to check their gospel while they're there. Uh, and they travel to Jerusalem, verse 4. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. So here we go. The Judaizers strike again. And uh, maybe I'm a geek, but this is, this is awesome to me. Like, all right, we've got all the apostles here. The debate's on. This is going to be good. You know what I'm saying? And so going on as we move forward, we're going to hear arguments from Peter. Then we're going to hear arguments from Paul and Bartimaeus together. And then we're going to hear some arguments from James. And they all come from different angles. And I love how this fits together. So verse 7, And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know that you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles, by my mouth, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knows the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And so uh, Peter's making reference to this story in Acts chapter 10. We have the situation where uh, he's up on the roof of his house, and he's praying, and all of a sudden this, this vessel of some kind comes down and it's got a bunch of unclean animals in it. It's probably lobster and crab legs and bacon. Okay? And, and, and God says, rise, kill and eat. And Peter's like, not so, Lord. You know, I don't eat that stuff. I've never eaten that stuff and I won't ever eat that stuff. And God says to him, what I have cleansed, don't call unclean. Okay? And Peter's, Kind of stewing on that. What is that supposed to mean? And what he didn't know about was, aside from this story, Cornelius, a centurion, a man of God, but he's a Gentile. 
and he's not saved by grace through faith yet. But he's praying to God. He's giving alms. This guy, I mean, God's chomping at the bit to save this man. And sends, uh, well, gives Cornelius a vision to send some men to Joppa, where Peter's at, and bring Peter back to his house to talk to him. So God reveals that, hey, there's some men at your door, and you need to listen to them and do what they say. And these men were sent for him. So he goes to uh, Cornelius' house. And when he's there, he, he, well, I'm sure he's feeling a little bit uncomfortable, like, oh, well, I'm in this unclean Gentile house. This is pretty much against the law. You know, if, if the other Jews saw me doing this, there would be some serious, you know, throwing down happening. He gives them the gospel anyway. And while he's still yet preaching, the Holy Ghost falls on the whole house. Everybody starts preaching or uh, speaking in tongues, and um, at this point, Paul or Peter is just dumbstruck. Oh my goodness! So God is saving the Gentiles because obviously the Holy Spirit has fallen on him. That is a sign and seal of that of that finished work of the cross. They're saved. So then they go and get baptized. Little rabbit trail there, but notice that the Holy Spirit came first. Therefore, they were saved. Then they got baptized, not the other way around. You don't get baptized to get saved. You get baptized because you're saved. Now, it's a response to salvation. So, um, you know, that's what Peter's talking about here. And he's making reference to that. And so then we move on to uh, Paul and Barnabas. And uh, basically, and they don't really go into depth here in the scriptures as far as like what they said. Um, but, uh, uh, let's see, verse 10, Therefore, why tempt you, God, to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. So Peter's argument was, listen, God came to me and showed me. He showed me and told me that he was going to make them clean. And then I got to see it with my own eyes. I went and saw God's Holy Spirit fall on this house, and I watched these Gentiles get saved. Paul and Bartimaeus, they're like, we've been walking around talking to Gentiles for quite a while now. And they're getting saved. And we are seeing miracles, signs, and wonders happening all around this. Okay? So that's that's their version of the story. So everybody's like, hmm, okay. Then James steps up. Verse 13, And after they had held their peace, James answered and said, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, that's uh, Peter, hath declared how God at the, at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, and I will, I will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who does all these things. And so James' argument is, Guys, this was prophesied in the scriptures. You guys are seeing it firsthand. 
You over there, God told you firsthand, and then you got to see the Holy Spirit fall in this house. And I'm telling you, God prophesied this would happen through his prophets. Now, he only uh, mentions one prophecy here. There's actually quite a few in the Old Testament that talk about uh, God eventually, his grace would be for the Gentiles as well. A couple more that are worth mentioning. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give for give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou may be my salvation, salvation unto the end of the earth. Thank you. Also, Zechariah 2, verse 11. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. So, anyway, there's there's a bunch of them in the Old Testament like that. Basically prophecies that there will come a time, and that time is now, that God's grace will be shown to us Gentiles. Praise God for that, too. And so Peter, James, and Paul, they all weigh in on this debate. They all give their different arguments. And then we see in verse 18, James comes up and, and, and basically gives a verdict on this whole thing. And... As we see, as we go a little bit farther, the Holy Spirit weighed in on this decision as well. Okay? So he says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they, three things, they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. I guess that's four things technically, but I always marry the last two. So, what's going on there? Okay, pollutions of idols, uh, idol worship, bowing down to idols, sacrificing. You see, back then, and especially in that area, there were a lot of pagan festivals. And uh, we're talking, you know, sacrifices and, and orgies, okay? Pretty serious. Um, incredibly offensive to the Jews. And so it's like, don't do this stuff, okay? Fornication, sex outside of marriage, okay? Still a sin today. That's a big problem. Uh, were the Galatians taking part in that or, or even these uh, uh, pagan festivals where there were sacrifices and stuff? Uh, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, but it seems that what is happening here is James is saying, look, you know, these Jews... They are learning God's law in the synagogues. They've been doing that every week, every Sabbath day for thou- or about 1,500 years. This is ingrained in their minds. This stuff is highly offensive to them. So if you're part of it, you need to stop. Okay? And plus, we're going to say this publicly because we want the Jews to hear. Don't do that. As in, we Christians, we're committing to not doing these things that really offend you. Okay, And the last one, and this is the one that always trips people up, from things strangled and from blood. I've actually heard some Christian teachings that are like, you should not eat anything with blood in it. Um, and honestly, there's, there's some health reasons for that. Um, but in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, I believe. I seem to have lost my scripture. Nope, Genesis chapter 9, verse 4. But, but flesh with the life thereof 
which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. Uh, this was a command and uh, highly offensive to the Jews. The Gentiles walking in their liberty were like, woohoo, ju- you know, juicy steak. You know what I'm saying? These types of things. And it was really offensive to the Jews. And so what's happening here is James is like, hey, look, 1,500 years of hearing this every every Sabbath uh, and, and seeing in their own lives where every time they steer away from the Mosaic law, bad stuff happens. And every time they steer back and come back to the Lord, good stuff happens. So this is a people that's like, we ain't moving, okay? I don't know about Jesus just yet, and this grace uh, sounds really good, but I'm going to keep the law, okay? My fathers did, and my fathers before that, and I've heard some pretty bad stories, okay? So James is like, look, it might take a while. So just allow God's grace and his Holy Spirit to work in their lives. Let's not offend them. Let's not put, a stum- put any stumbling blocks in front of the gospel, so that we can win some, you know, we want to be winsome people, and we don't want to offend. The gospel is offensive enough, and so and that's applicable. Applicable now, easy for me to say, you know. Um, for example, like if you were going to go out to eat with uh, a Jewish family, and uh, you know, part of your motivation was you were hoping to steer them closer to Christ, you definitely wouldn't be ordering a ham sandwich or some crab legs or some pork ribs. You know what I'm saying? As much as you might want to, you're not going to do that. You know, when Danielle and I were having uh, uh, Mormons at our house and we were witnessing to them, Mormons are highly offended by people drinking coffee. Okay? We didn't serve coffee. Or any hot drinks for that matter. No tea, no hot cocoa. We stuck with things like, you know, milk, juice, here's some brownies, we loved on them, but we did everything we could not to offend them because the gospel was offensive enough. And uh, tearing apart the Book of Mormon gracefully and lovingly with a big smile on my face was also very offensive enough, <laughs> you know? So don't don't sweat the small stuff. And that's all really is going down here. So moving on, uh, uh, we end this, verse 21, uh, and, and this is exactly what I was trying to allude to Verse 21, for Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. And so verse 22, then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. They sent these men uh, with letters uh, that said this, okay? It said, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us <laughs> to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, for which if you keep yourselves, you will do well. Farewell. And that's it. That's the conclusion. Uh, it's not that James says, you guys really should be doing works. Works are really what save you. Uh, make sure that you all get circumcised. I need you all to uh, keep all the Sabbaths. Make sure you observe all the feasts. Do not miss any, or you will be cut off. You know these types of things. Uh, not that it's wrong to do any of that. 
okay, or, or follow all the dietary laws, not by any stretch, but he's saying let's not place that burden on these Gentiles, okay? And uh, what about Titus? Well, Titus walked away and uh, didn't have to go through any unfortunate surgeries. So he was a living example of the fact, the truth, that we are not saved by circumcision. We're not saved by observing the Mosaic Law. We are saved by grace through faith. Okay, It's not anything we can do. And so moving on to verse 4, we're going back to Galatians now. Try not to rabbit trail us anymore, but that was so relevant to what's going on here. Um, I love that counsel, and I brought that up in so many podcasts because of the legalism that I continue to see out there. And that because of false brethren, unawares, brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So, Paul here is calling them false brethren. As in, they probably weren't even saved. These Judaizers were referred to as false brethren. They were not brothers in Christ. Make sense? So, uh, you know, that warning we see at the beginning of this book, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, that, that basic, that warning that says, uh, people that preach another gospel, a gospel that we have not preached, let them be accursed. Um, that's pretty serious. It's really serious. And so, these guys are referred to as false brethren, and they are trying to bring what? They're trying to bring these Gentiles into bondage. And so verse 5, to whom we the apostles gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So the apostles didn't put up with it for a second. And neither should we. Okay, You know, Paul declared that curse by the Holy Spirit that people that preach these other Gospels, they are accursed. Okay, They are anathema. And uh, there are so many other Gospels out there, as you guys have heard me already rant about. Um, and we should not be putting up with it. We need to put a stop to this stuff. We know that until the end times, they're going to keep coming out with more false stories. I mean, it just keeps coming and coming and coming. I just found out about a new one while I was in China. I wanted to mention it when I was up here this last Sunday with this group called Eastern Lightning. I wasn't really planning on mentioning this, but it's so fascinating. They believe that Christ already, well, it has come again. This time he's a female. He's a she. And uh, her name is Deng. No puns. Stop there. And this group is really violent. They only go after Christians. That's only the only people they witness to is Christians. And Christians that oppose them in any way, shape, or form, a lot of times they will kidnap them, hold them against their will for a couple months, drug them out of their mind while they're trying to pound them with this new other gospel. They'll also use um, various sexual things as well. This group is nuts. You would think it was some little cheesy offshoot little cult group that has no followers. They're actually over a million strong. And they're spreading to the United States. And we've never heard of them. It's like the biggest cult you've never heard of. So anyway, there's a lot of false gospels. We should not put up with them. 
We should understand what they believe, but we should refute them and show them the truth in love. Okay? So, verse 6, this cracks me up. But of these who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person, for they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. What? Well, Paul's talking about the apostles. These guys that be, seem to be somewhat, you know, he wasn't standing in awe of them and being like, oh, Peter, James, you know, I am so not worthy, kind of like the first time I met Kent Hovind, ah, oh, shaken, or the first time I met Ed Taylor, you know. No, he wasn't intimidated by these guys at all. And then he goes on to say, uh, they seem to be somewhat in conference, but they added nothing to me. And what he actually meant by that is that I had the gospel right, 100% right the first time. Uh, so Judaizers, I'm sorry, I didn't miss anything. They added nothing to me. I've been preaching the right thing this whole time. And so verse 7, But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for that he wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And I know the King James says that a little confusing, but uh, Peter was he's an untrained, for the most part, uneducated fisherman, and God sends him to the Jews, okay? These guys that all know the law and here, there's this uneducated fisherman witnessing to them, and they're coming to the faith in droves. And then Paul, this amazing scholar, scholar of scholars, teacher of teachers, had the Torah memorized, was taught under the greatest teacher of that time, Gamaliel. And he's sent to the Gentiles. He's got all this awesome knowledge. You'd think God would send him to the Jews. God's like, no, they're not going to receive you. And he goes to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are getting saved in droves. It's like God's in the business to confound the wise. You know what I'm saying? It just it, it cracks me up when I read that. It blows my mind. And so, verse 9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. And, and that's basically the right hand of fellowship is exactly what it sounds like. They basically said, yep, you got it. This, we're, we're on the same page. Keep doing what you're doing. And verse 10, only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. Um, kind of an interesting little fact is, is uh, uh, when uh, a lot of these people had traveled to Jerusalem on Pentecost and then ended up hearing the preaching of Paul and got saved, um, there was a good portion of them that never went back to their hometowns. They stayed in Jerusalem. So in effect, they were kind of homeless. I mean, I'm sure they were all accepted into various houses, but there was a ton of poverty at this point. And so uh, the, James is just reminding them, hey, you know, Paul, I know you're going to be heading around and hitting all these different areas and talking to a lot of different churches, just remember us, because we, we kind of need it. And Paul's all over that. So, verse 11, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. Okay, so Peter did something here. Paul was pretty mad about it. 
And so going on in verse 12, for before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. What in the world is going on here? First I want to point out, uh, and this is kind of a rabbit trail, but I think it's a good one. Paul rebukes Peter to his face. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I get accused all the time online. People say things like, hey, touch not the Lord's anointed. You know, they always say that when you're being critical of, of false teachers, false prophecies, or their bad teachings. You know, when somebody like Benny Hinn says that Jesus had to both suffer on the cross and then had to go to hell and be punished for three days by Satan and a bunch of demons, and you have to believe both of those things to be saved, that's false teaching. Okay? And, you know, I'll say something like that online, and next thing you know, you got a bunch of people saying, touch not the Lord's anointed. You know, and what that basically means is, you know, Benny Hinn is so anointed, he's sent from God, so you really shouldn't say anything critical of him. Tell that to Paul, who went to Peter, Peter, and rebuked him publicly to his face. Um, I think it's also worth mentioning, too, um, another rabbit trail. Roman Catholicism teaches that Peter was their first pope. And according to their doctrine, the doctrine of the papacy, uh, the pope is infallible. He can do no wrong in matters of doctrine and practice. And so if Peter was the first pope, he was definitely not infallible because he did some really silly stuff here. Okay, So all that to say, yeah, the whole doctrine of the papacy is what caused the whole Roman Catholic Church to go so far off base because each one of these popes keeps adding and adding and adding. And next thing you know, they've got a doctrine that is so far from what Christianity started as that, it, I mean, it's a mess. It's a total mess. So anyway, rabbit trail over. What's going on here? Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was having fellowship with all these new believers. Awesome. That's good. Then the Judaizers come to town, and he, fearing them, uh, fearing their opinion, because Peter was had a really huge reputation with these guys, Okay, fearing them, he withdrew from the Gentiles and stopped eating with them and stopped fellowshipping with them. And then all of the Jews, the believing Christian Jews that were with him, suddenly were like, oh, and they started following him off on this crazy thing again as well. And it got so out of control that even Barnabas was confused and was like, oh, oh, okay, I guess we shouldn't be eating with these guys. Because, you know, again, for 1,500 years, the, Jew, the Gentiles were unclean. You shouldn't be eating with them. And plus, they eat a lot of unclean, yummy stuff. Okay? And so, uh, Peter has done this thing publicly, and what has that done? That has damaged the gospel. Because that's saying that, uh, one, okay, maybe the Gentiles weren't made clean. Now, I thought the middle wall of partition was taken down. I thought that there was neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, we're all one in Christ, right? And even Jesus himself taught that um, we are one with him and also one with each other. And so what he done, he, he, he had severely damaged the gospel. Because he did that publicly and had caused so many people publicly 
to get confused about this, Paul didn't do the regular church discipline that we would expect. Right? The Bible talks about church discipline, and it's more of a situation where you go to them privately first, and you try to persuade them from the scriptures. If they don't listen, if they don't repent, then you go get a stable, competent, well-versed brother or sister, and you go back to them and talk to them again. If they're still not persuaded, they still don't repent, then you take them in front of the church. Then it gets bad. And eventually you turn them over to Satan. I mean, if they're, if they, could you imagine if church did that nowadays? If churches stuck to that a little bit more, what the church would be like right now? Perhaps not as far astray. Um, but no, Paul goes to him and publicly rebukes him. Okay? Why? Because he had publicly done this thing and led so many people astray. He didn't do this to humiliate Peter. He loved Peter. But he did it because he was really distressed and it was like, we have to deal with this and we got to deal with it corporately at this point because all these people are, are really messed up now and we got to get the gospel back on track. So, uh, verse 14, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as the Jews? Who, who We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, <laughs> knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Ooh, what does justified mean? I've heard somebody, some teachers will say, you know, justified, like justified never sinned. You know? And I, th I think that's, that's pretty awesome. I think that actually works pretty well. Usually little short, pithy things like that don't quite work. But um, in Romans, we see what justification, real thorough theological explanation of justification. And uh, in that, if the second that you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and Him alone for, for the salvation of your sins, you are justified. It is just as if you had never sinned. If an airplane flying over drops an engine and it falls through your roof and squashes you to the ground, which happens every day around the world, you will be bound for paradise right then. You're saved. You're justified. Now, doing good works, uh, there's this process called sanctification. And that is the process of which the moment after you've been saved, the Holy Spirit starts getting in your life and starts putting his finger on different sins in your life and convicting you of them, and then helps you in the process of cleaning up, changing, becoming a new person, being washed by the water of the word, be you know, being renewed, right? And that's sanctification. So right now we're seeing the Judaizers are kind of getting the cart before the horse. Um, so yeah, I mean, like the thief on the cross next to Christ. He didn't have time to repent. I mean, he had time to repent. He didn't have time to really change his life. He didn't have any time to get down and try to do some good works and real quick go get circumcised and you know these types of things. <laughs> he didn't have time, but yet Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. 
So, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Observing the Sabbath cannot save you. Observing all the feasts, as awesome as they are, praise God for the feasts, but observing them cannot save you. Observing all the dietary laws cannot save you. Circumcision, did I already say that? Cannot save you. Any of the other 613, I don't even know how to pronounce it, mitzvah, commandments, mitzvot, cannot save you. It is only through Christ alone and what he did on that cross. And so, uh, one more thing I wanted to mention here, because in James chapter 2, verse 24, there's something that goes down that James says something that has vexed Christians for centuries. And for many years, it screwed my head up too. Okay, He says, by the works by works, a man is justified and not by faith only. Okay, this is James who just said that. So is this a Bible contradiction, or what did I miss? What's going on here? Like, has that ever messed with any of you guys? And so I just thought, since we're talking about justification, let's look at that really quick, because this fits right in with what we're talking about. Um when you look at what he says there, it's completely contradicted by what Paul says. You know, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, so what is it? Is there a different, uh, uh, focus that James is talking about here? Does he have a different kind of camera angle? Does he mean the same exact thing when he says justified? Well, there are five points that I want to really quick bring up that I think kind of help in this. Uh, you know, is James really saying that works proceed salvation and that we have to keep working to be saved? <clears throat> Acts, I'm sorry, James chapter 1 verse 17, he alludes to the fact that salvation is a gift that comes from above. It's a gift. Okay? Second point, uh, he even mentions that the law is basically impossible to keep. Uh, he says that in James, uh, let's see, 2, verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. I mean, d- d- does that not just like, like you could be perfect your whole life, which is still impossible, and you just do one stinking wrong thing, you know, pick something up on the Sabbath or whatever, and oh, done, you're done, check please. So, third point, we already discussed this, Acts chapter 15. He should have said something there. If there was, if there was anything about, uh, salvation through works, he would have said it right there during that council. But he didn't. Uh, fourth, Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. He, okay, James quotes this verse in this passage. And he mentions, he mentions, uh, uh, what, what God says in 15 verse 6. God credited righteousness to Abraham solely on the basis of faith. It says he believed in the Lord, that would be Abraham, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So uh, how was this accredited to Abraham, works or faith? Well, James, when he's talking about how Abraham is justified by faith, he's talking about this offering of Isaac. But the offering of Isaac didn't happen for years. After that. 
So it's definitely James is talking about a, he's, he's coming at justification from a different angle. He means something different. Well, what does he mean? We get a clue about what he means in uh, verse, I think it's uh, verse 17 and 18. He's addressing a vain man. This is a man, oh, we know, we all know people like this. They're like, oh, I'm saved. Yeah, I walked the aisle. I, I prayed the prayer. You know, I believe in Jesus. And then you look at their lives, and it's a train wreck. You don't see any fruits of repentance in their life. You don't see any change. And what? Well, their their walk is without any works at all. Their faith is dead. And, and likewise, I think that you know that would go for us too. If we claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and we're trusting in Him for our salvation, but yet we don't see any evidence that the Holy Spirit's working in our life. We don't see any change at all. I mean, obviously, if somebody gets saved, it might take at least, you know, there's going to be a little honeymoon period there where things might not change right away. But you should start seeing works. You should start seeing changes. You should start seeing the Holy Spirit convicting them of their sins. If you don't see that in any of our lives, that would be cause to stop and say, wait, is my faith dead? Am I even a believer? So, does works proceed salvation, or is it a result of salvation? It's a result of salvation. It's, it just naturally flows and follows from what Christ already did. And so, picking up in verse 17, uh, back in Galatians, but if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. This is a little confusing. What is he saying here? Well, I already kind of mentioned that Christ, A, had already made uh, the foods, in a, in a sense, had declared food clean. But more so, when we are one with Christ, we're also one with each other, with our brethren. Um, to say that Peter was right by pulling away from the Gentiles would be also saying that Christ is wrong and a minister of sin. So Paul continues on in verse 18, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Okay, Like if I go back to the Mosaic Law now, after I've been preaching it this whole time, that, it, that we are under liberty and grace, I'm going to make myself a transgressor. Verse 19, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me, praise God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Praise God. So there are no works that we can do to be saved. It is it is 100% a gift. It's awesome. So what should we do? We should trust in him. You know, obviously everybody here is saved, but anybody's listening online, which there will be some, you know, what can we do? We trust in him. Christ died on that cross 2000 years ago to pay the penalty that we owe for our sins. He did that for us. It's a gift. 
gave that as a free gift. And when we trust in him, not in anything we can do, not even baptism, we trust in him alone for our salvation. And yes, we should get baptized. Works follow salvation. So we trust in him alone. And then we start reading his word and live after him. Live our lives for him. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, sending your son Jesus and doing what you did 2,000 years ago for us. Thank you for paying the price that we owe. We thank you and we praise you. Uh, Father, we pray that anybody listening online uh, that doesn't know you, uh, that your Holy Spirit would be uh, lovingly wooing them and showing them, yes, that they are a sinner, that they have broken your laws, but that also you died on their behalf, that you paid for that sin. And if they trust in you, thus accepting that free gift, they can be saved. We pray, Father, that you would send this message out to many unsaved people and that you would call them in through this. But we thank you, Lord, for uh, the ability to come together yet again and study your word in public without being fearful. We just thank you for all these things. We pray, Father, that all of us would get home safely tonight. And uh, Lord, please seal all of your words tonight in our hearts that we will not forget anything. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing it out loud